0: we sang, cool. uh, the reward, okay, giving everything, yeah, yeah. words like that, what's that, okay. and this, what's this, recording, that's the real one, Josh. is that the problem, <laughs> how am I going to page over, I'm on the main stage, okay. he's on the, he's on, he's on the, the beast, it. pop it under here, otherwise yeah. I'll flip it on, I'm on the floor. I'm on the main okay. stage, yeah, yeah. Don't say anything edgy. Pretty good to be with you guys. I'm really happy to be here. A lot of faces I recognize. Um, and A lot of parallels, similar journeys, coming out of the same space and all of that good stuff. So Father, I just pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight. Amen. So we're going to chat. There's not a movement in this place. We're going to chat a little bit. What I'm going to do today is I'm going to, because I know that this is what you guys live for, I'm going to talk slightly about church history. I know that that's what you come to church for. Um, And then we're also going to talk a little bit about theology, and I'm going to weave some story into that lot. And by the end of this, hopefully it will make a bit of sense to you. So historically, you guys were born from a movement called evangelicalism. I don't know if you knew that. And uh, that movement has its roots in movements that actually predate the Reformation. And the Reformation had its 500th anniversary last year. So you are actually an ancient little church. Your roots come from ancient of time. So what I want you to do is in your minds, when I use the word evangelical, most of you immediately go to the United States and got wrapped up in their political scenario, right? So, I need you to disassociate that word from party politics completely, because that's actually a misuse of the term. So, where the great confusion came about in 1973, there was a thing, a case, a court case, which most of you would have heard about, uh, Roe versus Wade. And the outcome of that court case was wholesale on-demand abortion up to the third trimester. That was 1973. Prior to 1973, the Christian vote was split right down the middle half Democrat, half Republican. At the point of that court case's outcome, the Christian community went, hey, we can't vote for this. We can't vote for, we can debate whether abortion is uh, allowable under certain circumstances, and I certainly believe that it is. I'm no fundamentalist. But wholesale, on-demand abortion up to the third trimester, when the scriptures teach that God... Values humanity to the extent that humanity is the pinnacle of his creation Well, we've got a problem And the whole Christian vote then suddenly swung to the right and that became what is now the political scene But given the fact that Christianity is about 2025 years old, that's a pretty recent development in the greater scheme of things and because of the confusion with the party political scene People want to lose the tag evangelical. And I've wrestled with that. I've wanted to lose it. Can't we find something new? The problem is, when you're trying to convey who you are, it normally means that there's a tag involved. And actually, Caleb gave me a beautiful illustration by popping up Signal behind us over here. Because Signal is communicating something about yourselves just like Woodstock Community Church did. And Woodstock Community Church actually communicated something that was geographically centered, right? And you want to now break that. I think what's more important than moving away from tags is actually describing what we do mean when we use the tag, but also very clearly what we don't mean when we use the tag. So the heartlands of evangelicalism, far from being allied to party politics, is that we have a very, very high view of Scripture. And because Scripture teaches that humanity is the pinnacle of God's creation, we know that wholesale, on-demand abortion can't be right, right? That's where the confusion came in. The other thing that evangelicalism holds to is what we call the Evangelion, which is the centrality of Christ, the good news of the pure gospel. That's all it means. It's come to assume a whole heap of other things, but that's what it means. Now, a lot of Roman Catholics would hold to that jesuits for example would hold to that so it's not unique to us but our concern as evangelicals is that jesus is the message of the bible that's what it is jesus is central to the scriptures
1: so the reformation
0: itself is really the wellspring of the major claims of the evangelical faith martin luther is generally seen as the father of evangelicalism You guys heard that name before? Martin Luther? You know who he is? Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, Melanchthon, Benno Simons, those guys? They should kind of roll off you. Do you repeat those names at night before you go to sleep? No, don't worry about that. Like I said, generally, Martin Luther is seen as the father of evangelicalism. But after the Reformation, evangelicalism grew from two main streams. The one was pietism in the United Kingdom under the reign of Elizabeth I, the reign of peace. And the other one was uh, the Moravian Church was actually, uh, sorry, I said pietism, I meant Puritanism. The other one was pietism on the continent in Germany. uh, The Moravians, you know, the Moravian mission stations we have in Gennadendal and so on. Those were the two main streams where evangelicalism began to flow together. Uh, The evangelical movement was also affected by the Keswick Conventions, Uh, The mission movement and the Great Awakenings and their resultant revivalism in the United States. That's where you come from. But after the Reformation, Pietism and Puritanism began to move together and form this thing that became known as Evangelicalism. And like every movement before it, Evangelicalism responded to certain things and sometimes over-responded to certain things one of the things that the evangelical movement reacted against was a growing movement of what was called rationalistic theology on the continent 1800s 1900s rationalistic liberal theology basically works from what's called in theological circles an a priori assumption that means a prior assumption and the prior assumption is that there is no miraculous not now Not then, not ever. Now the moment that you have that prior assumption that there can be no miraculous because the universe is closed, every time you come across the miraculous in Scripture, you have to argue it away, right? Because you now have to develop a theory as to how it came to be there. And of course these new people called evangelicals who had this amazing awakening, miraculous awakening in their own hearts that drew them out of darkness and brought them into the light of Jesus Christ, went, no, God still speaks. God still does miracles. God has always done the miraculous and always worked in signs and wonders, and they reacted very strongly against that. And I think that God's counsel to old Job for that kind of disbelief is very helpful. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? When the morning stars sang together, and all of the sons of God shouted for joy, where were you? Okay, so that's an overview of the distant past of your heritage. I'm going to bring it a little bit closer to home now, narrowing it down. So in what was then this new evangelical movement, because they allowed God in, in the miraculous, God began to speak. And there were three distinct waves of the Holy Spirit. The first strong wave of the Holy Spirit was the great awakenings in the United States, and concurrent with those—that means at the same time, right? Concurrent. It's a good word. Concurrent with those would have been what was going down in the UK and on the continent in the late 1700s. William Wilberforce, John Wesley, Charles Wesley—all of those guys—they were all charismatic. And this move carried on through the 1800s in a number of outpourings of the Holy Spirit, with the Great Awakenings and the Welsh Revival being the most publicized of those. There were many others, but those were the two that got most of the publicity. That was the first wave. The second wave of the Spirit was in the Azusa Street revivals in the early 20th century, 1902 through 1906, and Pentecostalism was born out of that. The name you should know there is a guy called William Seymour. The third wave, now we're getting very close to him. Huh? The third wave, and for all of you anti-Catholics, I need you to hear this, started in 1964 on the Roman Catholic University campus of Notre Dame in the United States of America. Or as they say in the States, Notre Dame. It started at Notre Dame and it spilled over into what was at that time the rather staunchly anti-charismatic evangelical churches and something called the jesus movement was born out of that and that was called the neo-charismatic revival that was the third wave and the jesus movement spawned churches like uh, calvary chapel vineyard and out of that the kansas city prophets uh, ihop catch the fire or toronto basically that's what came out of the Jesus movement and influenced others like Bethel. Bethel's roots are more closely aligned to the second wave, but Bill Johnson is very clear that there were third wave influences in their birth as well. Now, why am I telling you what it I'm telling you this to indicate that Woodstock Community Church, or now Signal, right? Signal, okay? Uh, whether you recognize it or not, whether you even knew it or not, wasn't born into a void. You come out of radical third wave influences. That's what you were born out of. And the third wave comprised those evangelicals who up to the 1960s and 70s had staunchly resisted any move of the Holy Spirit. A part of your heritage is that you actually staunchly resist... No, that's not true. <laughs> But that is a part of the heritage. The third wave were really those guys who came into the things of the Spirit stonalized as God was moving. Now, my own belief is that there is a fourth wave currently underway. And it's what I would call the wave of grace. And I think that grace is going to be a unifying movement. Um, But like any other move of the Holy Spirit, there will be those whom it bypasses, which is always very sad. But there will be those who don't get it. So I personally believe we're in a, in a wave of the Spirit called the Grace Wave. So, two things from what I've said that might stand out as very important to you in your DNA and your heritage is one, the felt or the manifest presence of God, which is very different from the theological omnipresence of God. We know that God is everywhere all of the time. But what we're asking for in the manifest presence of God is, Lord, would you open our eyes, Holy Spirit, would you catch us up into the presence of God so that we become aware of your presence. And directly flowing from that, healing, signs, wonders, and miracles, right? That's our heritage. These are the things that characterize the third wave and all the churches born out of it. And I don't think I will ever let go of these things as long as I live. In a sense, I live for these things. So who you are as signal and who I am as yellow knife vineyard Christian fellowship, which really needs to change, but let's leave that there, is not about to change. That's who we are. Manifest presence, healing, prophecy, Signs and wonders are our DNA and Lord Jesus, we desire you and these things that you bring, more of you Lord, more of your presence, more of your power, more of your love, more of your grace, more of you, less of us, come Lord, come Lord, more of you, more of you, less of us, more of you. However, and the however part is really what this message is about. In the third wave churches, the churches born out of the third wave, we have sometimes neglected that Scripture urges us continuously to count the cost of the call. Luke fourteen twenty-eight: For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down, And count the cost and whether he has enough to complete it. So, what is the cost of being a Christian to you and me? From the floor, any thoughts? What is the cost of being a Christian to you and me? Say again. At the beachfront, you could be, that's a slightly low cost, but yes, (laughs) I I hear that, that's a good illustration, thanks. Okay, so the cost is twofold. The first cost is nix, nada, nothing. It costs Jesus everything, but it's a gift, and you don't pay for a gift, do you? So it costs you nothing. The second cost is it costs you everything. Because Jesus brought us into a new covenant. And the cost of a covenant is everything. In a covenant, I lay down my rights to any life of my own. I'm not going to go into covenant teaching now. It's what I've been teaching on for six weeks in Canada. But in in a covenant, I lay down any rights to any life of my own. And I become the property of my covenant brother or sister. And Jesus is my covenant brother. I have no rights to any life of my own, and the problem for us as Western, materialist Christians is I'm not sure that we've even begun to think through what that necessarily means to us. The New Testament speaks as much, if not more, about pain, suffering, trouble, strife, opposition, Calamity and betrayal as signs of the new covenant as it does of wonders, miracles, healings, and whatever else. Breakthrough. And I suspect that in the early days of the third wave, we were so excited that God would use such sinful, scabby, scaly, ex hippie sex, drugs, and rock and roll people like us. To usher in his kingdom to bring about healing to bring about conversion to bring about deliverance that we forgot that there is a cost to the call. and not only is there a cost we neglected the new testament warning and prophecy and promise that trouble pain suffering opposition loss betrayal and trauma run concurrent with miracles breakthrough signs and wonders Shall I repeat that? Yes, sir. Trouble, betrayal, everything that is negative that can happen in your life that comes your way runs concurrent with miracles, breakthrough, signs, and wonders. Wow. Suffering is, in fact, according to the New Testament, one of the signs of the kingdom. The New Testament more than just hints at that. What Joel Osteen preaches God bless him and sells by the millions is at very best a cherry-picked Old Testament message. It ain't the gospel. Sorry, Joel. So I've said that according to the New Testament, suffering is clearly a sign. Well, I'm starting to suspect that Christians just getting along together might be a wonder. (laughs) So maybe you could call this message, Melts Signs and Wonders, Suffering and Christians Getting Along (laughs) Together. It's not a case of one or the other of breakthrough or opposition. These things run concurrent in our lives and they come our way whether we like them or not. And they come our way as a mixed bag of miraculous, amazing, great, good, bad and ugly. It's Grant Cook who says that he has been stabbed in the back so often that his wife started calling him Commander. Yeah. <laughs> the reality of the church is that it is a space of victory and defeat, joy and pain, delight and dismay. Os Guinness speaks of the discipline of utter dismay. If you've never been there before, I have good news for you, you will still get there. We are in a huge war for what I call the collective soul of humanity. And in that conflict, we will experience victories, draws, defeats and everything in between. All sorts, in a drawn-out war, that would you hear this, we ultimately get to win. Whatever evil we might meet along the way, whatever beauty and joy we behold, whatever signs of the coming of the kingdom we witness, unfortunately Satan wins victories along the way. But Jesus and His love and His grace and His power win the war. And Satan, like the crossbred bred brak that he is, <laughs> goes back to the abyss where he belongs. But in between, he has a little bit of false hope. In World War I and World War II, the Allies lost many, many battles. But they won the war. Verdun in World War I was a dramatic defeat. Pearl Harbor in World War II was Pearl Harbor, right? We have that saying. We say it was Pearl Harbor when things really fall apart. So I'm going to move to Scripture now. I'm going to move first generally to Scripture and then I'm going to get specific. Generally, the same Paul in Scripture who raises the dead also gets flogged, shipwrecked, jailed, and arrested. Mixed bad, Right? miracles and trouble the same peter who heals the man at the temple gates gets arrested and flogged and jailed and ultimately because we know it from church history gets crucified upside down for what's the cost to you and me whenever there is a breakthrough in whatever way we win territory every healing every financial breakthrough every redemption Every conversion, every reconciliation, every act of love or kindness is a victory and a glimpse of the future kingdom breaking into the present. But there are also losses and defeats. And to be sure, there is a cost to this call. You know, so often in our lives as disciples, we find ourselves swimming against the current right and it's uncomfortable swimming against the current most of the time we are what what us and with in their famous book resident aliens it's very thin read it we are what they term resident aliens we are resident with our feet firmly on the ground but alien from so much that's happening alien from so many of the powers behind the scenes That we can't control that seem to be guiding and steering society and the globe as we know it and we're alien to it i want to be very clear here we don't develop martyrdom complexes we don't seek out trouble we don't seek out strife and suffering but for all of humanity those things come to have trouble is to be human For Christians, those things sometimes come as persecution, and often they come as warfare. Satan comes to steal, to lie, to cheat, to maim, and to rob. Troubles come. But we don't become martyrs that feel that, oh, unless I'm suffering for the sake of Jesus, I'm just not doing it properly. You get that kind of plain button-down Christianity. It's very off-putting. when troubles come i think the call is that we lean into jesus and we ask for and we expect breakthrough miracles signs and wonders and i think it's possible and not only possible but advisable for us to hold that tension because where we are taught that god only blesses and gives material blessing and health blessing and wealth blessing and every other blessing the moment trouble comes people pack up their bags and leave the faith that is not what the New Testament teaches.
1: Here is a New
0: Testament promise that you won't hear people claim. Jesus, in speaking to Ananias about Paul, says this I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. That's a promise. When else you claim that? You see, he promised it to Paul, and be sure that he promises it us, to us as well. It's a bottle of it. We know from both scripture and also from church tradition that every single one of the original apostles lost their lives for the sake of Christ. Every single one. Not one survived. And I wonder sometimes how it is possible That we've landed in a space that says we are blessed by god only when i have everything that my materialistic little heart desires and i have perfect health and everything around me is perfect and then i am blessed that is a delusion let me illustrate to you the east african revival started in 1929 my boss of the past three years is a man called nicholas wafula He's a 73-year-old Ugandan and a saint. He fled Uganda three times during the reign of Idi Amin. And he came to faith in the aftermath of what was the East African Revival. A 40-year revival. And Nicholas says to me, "Not after the first three weeks of preaching the prosperity gospel in the early 1940s, the revival stopped dead in its tracks. It had run for 40 years. And then they started preaching this muck and the revival stopped. Let me tell you something about revival. There is nothing other than prayer that you and I can do to bring it on. But there sure as hell is plenty that we can do to stop it. Plenty. He says after 40 years we were weeping because the things that God had been been doing, we'd seen people come to Christ in droves. It stopped dead the moment the first prosperity message was preached. The prosperity message is nothing less, please hear this, than crass materialism wrapped in Jesus. Be sure, when you're talking to people about coming to faith, to talk about the cost. Be sure to tell new converts that they will witness many miracles, many healings, many signs, many wonders, and along with those, much opposition and perhaps even Persecution. Be sure you let them know the full story of what it is that they are signing up for. Nowhere in scripture, much less the New Testament, are we ever promised a life without suffering. I'm going to now narrow this down to particular scriptures and I've got a lot. All I'm going to do is read them. I'm going to read them very quickly and then I'll shut the message. But just listen to how much of the New Testament speaks about this. And as many scriptures as I've quoted here, there are many more in the New Testament, and as many again in the Old Testament. One Peter five to ten. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Two Corinthians four seventeen. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. 2 Timothy 3:12. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There's a promise. When must you claim that promise? James 1:12. Blessed is the person who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive. The crown of life that the Lord Jesus has promised to those who love Him. John 16.33 I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart I have overcome the world. Luke 14.27 And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Unless you die with me, you can have no part of me. It costs you nothing, but it costs you everything. Philippians 3.10 I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of His resurrection and to participate in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. Paul, I'm not where you are here. You're inviting, you're asking to participate in His sufferings. I'm not there. Please, God, protect me from sufferings. But that's where He's at at this time. Romans 8.18 I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Romans 8.35 Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? 2 Corinthians 1 verse 3 to 4 Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our troubles. 1 Peter one to 7 In all of this, greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, you have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Not you might, you have to. There are many of you here going through trials. I don't have to be prophetic to know that. I don't have to know anything about you to know. 2 Corinthians 4, 8 to 10. We are hard pressed on every side but not crushed. Perplexed but not in despair. Persecuted but not abandoned. Struck down but not destroyed. James 1, 2 to 4. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Please do not quote that passage of people who are going through trouble. It's enough argument it to deck you with a left hook. Okay. <laughs> Romans 5, verses 3 to 5. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. God, stay thy hand. Please, Lord, no more. Matthew five ten to 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute, me, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. 1 Peter 4, 12 to 13. And this is the one I finish with. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. Okay guys, I promise you there are as many texts Old Testament and New. There is no arguing against the biblical promise that as believers we will face troubles and trials. In fact, nowhere in Scripture are we even encouraged to desperately try and escape these trials. We are rather encouraged to find our anchor in Jesus. I ask myself how we get a message of promised health and wealth without extreme cherry picking and ignoring the vast body of scripture. How do we land there? So of course I purposely left that last text till last. Um, Most of you will be aware, or many of you here will be aware that we lost our home in the recent 30th Bay fires and fires that was our home. We're not in the league of holiday houses, that's our home, okay, and everything that we own. And I, but I didn't want to make this message about me and my family. That's why I just left this till the end. Because I know that many of you are going through trials of many kinds. Many of you are suffering as I'm speaking. 1 Peter 4, 12-13 Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come to you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. So I'm not holding us out as some kind of super family who's been especially chosen to face trials of many kinds, because we're not. I prefer to say it like this. As a family, we've known our share of struggles and strife, for sure, particularly over the past uh, five years. More than some, less actually than most, Speak to your average refugee and ask them what they've lost. Your average refugee doesn't have insurance on his home when the fire burns it down. And the can actually, thank God, pay out 100%. There's no denialism here. We're in grief. We're mourning. We cry. Occasionally I strip my mood because that's my band. Okay? The women cry and I strip because right? we all have different ways of dealing with grief. Right? It's just a nice South African word. We're still in mourning. But look at what God has given us. That row of hideous people at the back on the left. Right? And that's only half of them. They're more. And we have a relationship. And we know that we love. Because the outpouring of love in the wake of this thing is where God wants The evidence of the greater blessing sits there. I don't want to show you a powerpoint presentation of what Betty's Bay looked like and what it looks like now. It looks like Armageddon. Take a drive through there. Have a look for yourselves. It's dreadful. There's no denying the grief that has, at times, overwhelmed us. But I want to close this thing by telling you where I've landed. And I'm not speaking on behalf of anyone else in my family. Because we've all landed in different places. I'm 56. I can't expect that Josh would land where I land. You know? We're all on a different journey. Same journey, but a different journey. I'm speaking in a singular because we grieve it differently. But this is where I've landed. And I want to urge you in this. In any hand that is dealt to you that you never expected, and that somehow will not be defeated by prayer, You know, we can close the doors here and we can pray for three weeks that it's all a dream, but my home's not going to get rebuilt in Betty's Bay. You kind of accept that, right? There's certain things that will not be defeated by prayer. Now, I need to make myself very clear here. Currently, I'm busy reading a book by Bill Johnson and uh, Randy Clark on healing. I have under no circumstances given up on any of that stuff. It's what I live for. But there are certain instances in which it becomes clear that this thing ain't changing. And when that place and time comes about, like a home that burned down, the only God-honoring response is to find Him in the trial. What is it, Lord, that you are saying to me in this trial? And He will give you the ability to do that. So for me... I have mourned, I'm still mourning, but I have peace. I have an incredible peace that wells up from within me. For me, I can say Christ in me, Christ in me, Christ in me, the hope of glory. Because it's at times like this that you realize what that means. I know myself. I was a provincial rugby hooker. We are awful people. (laughs) You do not look for trouble with a hooker. Not even if you're six foot seven. Everybody who plays knows that. We are terrible little warmongers. <laughs> My nature is to battle and to fight. What wells up from within me isn't me. It's him. I want to just urge you in one score here. You know, sometimes I've heard Christian leaders even say the most immature and bizarre things about suffering as they try to argue it way in Scripture. I've heard somebody say about someone else after he preached, lovely little theology of suffering he has over there. God have mercy on us. Because that kind of attitude is like saying not even God could sink the Titanic. We need to be very careful about things like this. I can explain why suffering exists. I don't want to do that. It's very simply, without need, without trouble, without suffering, we wouldn't even know what love is. Love responds to that stuff. And in God's economy, love is the greater good. In God's economy, for love to exist, those things have to exist. Because love wounds. Satan was in the fire. God is in the response to the fire. So where I'm left is gratitude for what we have. Mm. It will be with you. Thank you. Mm. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> just, um, Thanks a lot. Thanks do you want a prayer? Yeah, let me do that. So Father, I, I think in fact can I can I guide something in terms yes. of Yeah. Okay. I, I think what we want to do is say well we we bless you. For the response to calamity that we see in the world. We bless you for the love. The love that you've given your body. The love that you've even given people who do not buy into you. Lord, it's the biggest challenge we face is that there are friends of ours who do not believe that you are Lord and Savior and Master and Creator of the universe and yet they do good. Would you bless them? Would you take the good that they do and bring it into your new kingdom? Father, I want to pray for all of those in this space who are going through a trial of one kind or another. Whether that is financial, whether that's to do with kids, whether that's to do with something in their lives that just does not shift. We continue to pray as we prayed earlier, that passage was read to us, Lord, we believe, help us in our unbelief. That you will break through. That you will shift. That you will move mountains for us. But where you don't. As Daniel said. The God who we worship. Is able to save us. But even if he doesn't. We will not bow down and worship the beast. Yeah. So Lord even where for your sovereign purposes. You are not moving things. Would you allow us to see where you are in the situation. Would you allow us to see the blessing? Of you in times of trouble and strife. So I want to pray a kind of a weird prayer, not Lord, that you would save this congregation and these people from trial and struggle and opposition and persecution, but that in the midst of that, their lights would shine Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, the creator of the universe and the savior of every one of us here. But those who don't know would look and say, look at those people. It doesn't make sense. They suffer and yet they believe and have faith. So Holy Spirit come, come now. Rest on your people. I want you just to assume an attitude of receiving. Just open your hands, and we're going to pray that the Holy Spirit would come and would minister amongst them. Father, we are those wacky people who came out of the third wave of your spirit. And what we are not only uh, accustomed to, what we live for is your presence. Would you presence yourself with us now? Just come and rest on your people. So we're going to get silent for 30 seconds and see what God wants to do. Come, come, Holy Spirit. More of you, more of you. for one another, would you reveal to us what you want to say into each other's lives? More of you, more of your presence, more of your heart. Facing trials of any kind. Please stand. Just stand. Now it always takes one person to start, so somebody start. Okay. okay. Would all of you who are not facing trials of many kinds please go and pray for those who are facing trials.